0: I'm Joel Parker.
1: And I'm Susan Moran. This is How on Earth, the show that makes you smarter. Today is Tuesday, February 7th, 2012.
0: Coming up, we hear how climate change is changing Colorado's snowshoe hair.
2: Climate change and evolution are two powerful forces, and how they work together will determine the future of species. And, in honor of KGNU's
1: Technology Week, we talk with the inventors of a techie toy that the inventors hope will not only train future engineers, but maybe will change the world.
3: It's Cublets, a robot construction kit.
1: We begin with a look at some of the recent news in science.
0: Many people know about the placebo effect. That's where someone receives a fake drug or a medically ineffective treatment, but the person perceives or actually exhibits a change in their condition. In the case of pain management, placebos can reduce pain in some patients by creating an expectation of relief. Another method for pain reduction is distraction, such as doing some task that keeps your attention busy. Both methods, placebos and distraction, have been shown to reduce a person's perception of pain. And neuroimaging has shown that both methods produce activity in the same part of the brain, the dorsolateral prefrontal cortex. That's the part of the brain that controls high-level cognitive functions like working memory and attention, which is what you use when you perform a distracting and focus-intensive task. Because the two approaches, placebo and distraction, seem to activate the same region of the brain, it wasn't clear if using them together would somehow interfere or lessen their effects, or perhaps make them better. A new study by researchers at CU Boulder and Columbia University shows that the two methods are complementary, and their effects are additive. When the researchers combined distraction techniques with placebos, they found that the level of pain reduction that people experienced improved even more. There was no interference between the two methods. So the results suggest that two methods rely on separate mechanisms, even though they create activity in the same part of the brain. These findings could help clinicians maximize pain relief without drugs. The findings were published in the journal Psychological Science.
4: Tree rings have long been used to reconstruct past climates. But volcanoes challenge the accuracy of this method. Scientists from Penn State compared historic temperature reconstructions based on tree ring data with those from climate model simulations. They found that the two reconstructions were consistent, with one major exception, the climate's response to major volcanic eruptions. When a big volcano erupts, it releases aerosols into the stratosphere, which reflect sunlight and cause temperatures to drop. The tree rings indicated a temperature drop of one degree Fahrenheit following each of the eruptions, but the climate models estimated it to be closer to 3.5 degrees. The scientists determined that the climate models are more accurate. They add that the discrepancy between tree rings and climate modeling data was the result of the tree's limited ability to respond to the extreme temperature drops that a volcanic eruption can generate. A one degree drop approaches the tree's growth threshold. Growth rings at this temperature, or anywhere below it, are all but absent. The Penn State scientists report that cooler temperatures following a volcanic eruption can last up to three years, and these years are not accounted for in the tree ring records. The results were published in the most recent issue of Nature Geoscience. When it comes to the relationship between memory and
1: silence, not all silence is equal, according to a new study by U.S. and European researchers. People who suffer a traumatic experience often don't talk about it, and many forget it over time. But not talking about something doesn't always mean you'll forget it. For instance, if you try to force yourself not to think about the grizzly bear that lunged toward you while backpacking in Alaska, soon you might be imagining a pack of grizzly bears charging your bedroom door. Here's another example. If President Bush wanted the public to forget that weapons of mass destruction figured in the buildup to the Iraq War, he should not have... Avoided talking about the war and its buildup. Rather, he should have talked about the buildup, but avoided any discussions of WMDs, which he eventually did. The group of psychological scientists who've reached these conclusions found that the real relationship between silence and memory is much more complicated than Sigmund Freud suggested. That we all have deep-seated issues where we're repressing and not to talk about. We also have some memories that might be helpful to stop talking about the authors found that some silences are more likely to lead to forgetting than others. Choosing what we talk about and don't has important implications for how we remember the past. The paper was published in the Perspectives on Psychological Science, the journal of the Association for Psychological Science. And this Wednesday night, you can get answers to some hot questions such as What becomes a climate story? and how do media accounts of climate issues influence how those issues are discussed by scientists or policymakers, or if they do influence them at all? The answers come in a new book by Maxwell Boykoff, an assistant professor of human geography, environment, and society at CU Boulder. His book is called "Who Speaks for the Climate: Making Sense of Media Reporting on Climate Change." Boykoff will talk about his book Wednesday night at 7:30 at the Boulder Bookstore. For more info. Go to the Boulder Bookstore's website or do an internet search
0: on Maxwell Boykoff. Also on Wednesday evening, you can learn more about Jupiter at Boulder's Laboratory for Atmospheric and Space Physics, also known as LASP. The lecture at LASP will feature their Juno mission, launched in 2011 and scheduled to reach Jupiter in about five years. The lectures take place at LASP and starts at 730
1: You're listening to How on Earth, the show that makes you smarter. I'm Susan Moran. Each month, we're featuring a science story from the environmental publication High Country News, which is based in West, on the western slope of Paonia. Today, we bring you our second interview with a High Country News writer, Hilary Rosner. She writes about one of the cutest critters on Earth, the snowshoe hare. It's elusive and well camouflaged, so you probably have never seen one in the woods. To survive... These hares change their coats with the seasons, white in the snowy winter and rusty brown in the summer. But climate change is doing strange things to seasons. It's also changing the snowshoe hare's habitat. Snow comes later, and it leaves sooner, for instance. So now, some hare's fur turns white before the snow covers the ground, so that makes them easy meal for wolves and other predators... Whether these fragile hairs can evolve and adapt to their changing homes fast enough is a question some biologists are studying hard. Hilary Rosner, a local science journalist and author, joins us to talk about her cover article in the current issue of High Country News. Hilary, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. So how did you come upon these cute little critters, the snowshoe hare?
2: Um, You know, I was looking for a way to tell a story about climate change and evolution, which, as I said, are... um, Two extremely powerful forces, which people don't really realize are actually interacting with one another. And what happens when these two forces get together and how they interact is really going to help determine what happens to all the different uh, plants and animals and microbes and everything else that lives on Earth. So I was really looking for a way to tell that story. And, um, you know, what better way than with a cute, furry little snowshoe hare? <laughs> and you came upon this scientist? In Montana, um, yeah, you know, I was actually looking. I, I talked to a bunch of people on the front range. actually. there are a lot of people who are starting to study this, and there are some of them right here. Um, but they were studying uh, slightly less charismatic creatures. And so, again, the snowshoe hare just kind of won, won me over in the end. I can see
1: how. So describe, I mean, people know what bunnies look like in general, but what they look like and how they
2: actually live and what, what habitat
1: are you talking about?
2: Sure. So actually, they live um, pretty much all across the temperate uh, parts of the world, um, certainly all across North America. And, um, you know, they look like a like a bunny. Um, It's actually hares are different than rabbits, although they're in the same family. Um, They have these really, really long ears. And snowshoe hares have these very large feet, which help them run on the snow. I'm sure everybody's seen, you know, images of them sort of being chased by some predator that's about to about to snatch them up. Um, But they uh, they are brown in the summer and they are white in the winter. So they change color twice each year. And do we know how? I mean, it's not unusual for critters, mammals, to change
1: color for camouflage, but how do they actually do it? Do they do it sort of en masse or one at a time?
2: So this is one of the things that um, Scott Mills, the scientist in my story, is studying. Um, you uh, Color is something that's fascinated naturalists for for centuries because it's something that's so visible. And we know a lot about color in nature. But surprisingly, we don't actually understand animals that change their coat color seasonally. We don't understand how it works. We don't really know. Is it is it genetic? Is it um, behavioral? Can they control how... Quickly or slowly, they change color. So the initial trigger uh, scientists think is is sunlight. So when the amount of sunlight starts to decrease, um, they all sort of on mass begin to change. But then the actual transformation can take up to two months and the individual hairs tend to change at very different rates. And that's one of the things that Scott's trying to understand. So it's the
1: availability of sun or longer days or shorter days, not so much the amount of snow or when the snow
2: falls even? Right. And that is one of the, that's one of the concerns because obviously, you know, climate change isn't affecting the number of hours of daylight, but it is affecting the amount of snow and when the snow falls and those things are kind of getting out of sync. So this sounds like
1: this miraculous dance. They do, but what's throwing it out of balance, because you describe this mismatch.
2: Right. So the snowshoe hares are, you know, if it's it's the amount of daylight and waning daylight hours that triggers their initial transition, they're changing the same time they always did. But there's not always snow on the ground then. So when I went up to Montana in November, it was actually mostly brown, whereas it used to be mostly white. So now you've got these hares that are changing color and they're turning white before the ground is actually white. And
1: so you write that climate change may not be the only culprit, or I mean, to what degree is that coming to play here?
2: Well, so the, so climate change is definitely changing um, the, their surroundings, and the question that um, Scott Mills and other people are really trying to understand is, can the snowshoe hares change too? Because if they can't, if they're going to be increasingly white when the ground is brown, um, they are going to be... Uh, They're going to be eaten much more rapidly by all these predators, and then their population could shrink, and then that could have this kind of cascade effect through the ecosystem. But it's possible that they can actually keep up in some way, that they can change either behaviorally or genetically to keep pace. First of all you described this reminds me in the story. What did the
1: scientist say about oh, yeah. being caught off guard? Yeah,
2: he says when he says that uh, coming upon a mismatched hair in the woods is like walking in on someone taking a shower, that it's the most embarrassing thing that
1: you can see. And is that not anthropomorphizing? I mean it sounds really embarrassing, but does a snowshoe hair No, know it's being caught off
2: guard? Well, that's a great question. And we don't know actually. There's no we we don't actually know whether these hairs can tell if they're camouflaged or not. Sometimes they seem to be able to and then other times not.
1: So they're caught off guard and they're changing in this out of sync way. And you're saying it's uncertain as to what the effects will be or, or even more importantly, how fast they can catch up with sort of climate change and the, and the patterns it's causing, right?
2: Yeah. And that's where evolution comes in. So if they have if 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 this is a genetic mechanism in some way, it's possible that they can the population of snowshoe hares as a whole can can evolve you know, down the line over some number of years, so that they are actually in sync with the changing climate, in which case, They'll be fine, and we don't have to worry about them. Sounds like
1: the ultimate model for adaptation.
2: Yeah, it is. I mean, and it's, you know, it's possible that we don't have to worry about them. But actually, what, what it means, it doesn't mean that we can just kind of walk away and say everything's fine. What it means is that we need to try and make sure that they can evolve. We need to give them the capacity to, to evolve. And what does that mean? How do we give them the capacity well, it means making sure that there are large enough populations. That it means making sure that there are enough. There's a big enough gene pool. So it means making sure that there are large enough populations that they're interconnected, so that they can move around and keep keep genes flowing between populations. So,
1: so does that mean these guys like Scott Mills, the conservation biologist, are trying to figure out how to build even larger habitat or increase the gene pool because they're going to be essentially more defects?
2: They are trying to first understand what the mechanisms are <laughs> and and but yeah that would be the ultimate thing if it turns out that these snowshoe hares can evolve to keep up with climate change then we need to make sure that we do everything we can to to ensure that they're able to evolve.
1: Do they have any sense of like how many generations would it take to change the timing of their color change?
2: Um, no, I mean really, c- considering how many creatures there are on the planet that change their coat color seasonally, we really, really don't understand this phenomenon. And they're at not all. Drosophila flies, and right, you know. and they actually like they're not they don't do very well in captivity, so there aren't a lot of people working on them in the lab.
1: But they re- do reproduce like bunnies. They do indeed. <laughs> They do, but that doesn't—that's
2: not enough. So, to steal the subtitle of your article, um, can evolution save species from climate change? Um, I certainly hope so. It's an interesting idea, and it gives us another way to um, to look at things and another, another way to think about conservation. Well,
1: thanks so much for coming on the show. We appreciate it. That was Hillary Rosner, local journalist, who's written the cover article in the current issue of High Country News. You can find it at highcountrynews.org. If you're not a subscriber, you may not see it, so you can subscribe at hcn.org. <laughs>
5: You're tuned to How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. I'm Shelley Schlender, and the music that you're listening to is music specially programmed for a toy called Cubelets. And with me is one of the designers of Cublets, which is an award-winning tech toy in honor of KGNU's Technology Week. And right now we have all of these beautiful little square cubes here. Eric Schweikart, just what are these things?
3: Well, happy technology week, Shelley. These are Cubelets, they're a robot construction kit for kids. And it's made up of all these colorful little cubes and each one does something different. So when we were kids, we played with construction kits like Legos and erector sets and tinker toys. And now that we have all this fancy technology like microcontrollers and small memory, we can put a tiny computer inside every piece of a construction kit. That way the construction kit knows how it's been put together and can give some feedback to the user and do a little more than sit there.
5: And, um, you know, this is not just a toy. You have National Science Foundation funding for creating this toy. How'd you do that?
3: We do, well, we sort of have a subversive educational goal. We're not necessarily interested in typical STEM learning, but we want to start educating kids about complexity and emergent behavior. So uh, things like evolution and climate change, like we were just talking about, uh, and the hair are complex systems with a lot of emergent behavior that just sort of happen based on lots and lots and lots of little tiny local interactions that create larger effects. And a great way to learn about that is by giving kids models and tools to build their own complex systems so that they can start to see those patterns emerge in little local toy systems and then maybe be able to see that sort of effect in the world.
5: Now, just so that we know, how young a child can use these?
3: We've seen so that of, we're sort of targeting middle school kids because they, we think that's where the best sort of educational opportunities lie. But we've seen kids that are four or five stack up blocks and play with colored lights and build little robots uh, and get excited because of the magnetic connections on the cubes.
5: Well, you know, Eric Schweikart, we couldn't find a a young child to be here in the studio, but we had the next best thing. You see, Joel Parker is an astrophysicist. And he's been. Yes, he'll do. So he's been playing with these cubelets as we've been here in the studio. And what do you think, Joel?
0: They look like fun here. I'm trying to
3: just see how they fit together. They're. uh you know anything with magnets is great so you can <laughs> st- stick anyone onto its neighbor there's no inputs there are no outputs no syntax errors just st- snap any cube onto another one
0: right you don't have to worry about programming they
3: just fit together and something happens exactly normally when you build a robot you build a big plastic robot and then you turn your attention over to the computer and you program its brain uh, but that's not how the world works.
5: They, these are a little complicated for us to have close to the mics because they do have magnets in them. <laughs> oh, yes. Wow. I they so, so holding
0: up there and got feedback.
5: You, you, that's a bit of this toy here is that it's actually interacting and conversing with our microphones now, whistling a bit. But, but it, you say that one of these is a motor and
3: Let one of Let me give them you the quick a quick rundown on how they work. Uh, there's a variety of cubes. The black cubes are input cubes, like a light sensor and a sound sensor and a touch sensor and a twist sensor. The clear cubes are action cubes, like a little light-up bar graph or a block with wheels or a block with a rotating face or a flashlight or a speaker. And all of the colorful cubes in between are little bits of logic and computation that you can put in between to start building intelligence in your robot bit by bit.
5: Does it sort of make a critter?
3: It sort of makes a critter, yeah. Yeah.
5: I was thinking that with all of those different pieces, it would be like having a little toy doll that responds when, when you push a button.
3: Well, it's an interesting way to think about the world. One of my favorite books given to me by my advisor, Mark Gross, is called Vehicles by Valentino Breitenberg. It's a series of uh, mathematical thought experiments. In the first chapter, he puts a light sensor on a motor. And in the second chapter, he puts two light sensors on two motors and shows how steering can just happen. And then he puts threshold devices, and then he puts grids. And in chapter 24, he's built emotion and society and currency and all of these wonderful, magical things that we have in our lives. And building psychology and building life from the bottom up is maybe a good alternative to understanding it than trying to take it apart.
5: And and in fact, Eric Schweikart, as you've been talking, Joel Parker has been creating a form of life over here. I hear the buzzing and the whirring. What are you making there, Joel?
0: Well, I I was playing with uh, some of the wheel units to see uh, what I could get uh, to crawl across the uh, desk here. And I got something that is whining, at least. I don't know if it's complaining to me about how I built it.
5: Now, now you've won some awards for this. What kind of awards?
3: Well, we were just at the Consumer Electronics Show in Las Vegas, which was fun. And we got a Popular Science Product of the Future Award, uh, which was lovely.
5: You know, I, I I look at this as a product of the future, but what exactly do they mean? It's just cubes.
3: It is just cubes, um, but it's cubes that enable kids to build systems that exhibit intelligence and that drive around and that act like they have intentional behavior. So we have a, you know, we have a tendency to look at intentional behavior in the world. And, and,
5: and there it goes. It's, there I got it goes. to move. Back, it's Joel. alive. It's alive. <laughs> Keep it there on the desk, Joel. Keep it there on the desk. <laughs> Well, and so it is kind of fun to see these things happen. How long have these been out there?
3: We've been making them for about a year, and we're in the process of scaling up as best we can to try and make more of them.
5: Ah, so that means you have no longitudinal studies on just how this will affect the intelligence of our young children.
3: (laughs) We don't do anything like that. We just put toys out into the world and see what happens.
5: You you just play, and, and, and you believe there's something to that in terms of science and learning?
3: Oh, I do. I think, you know, play is a great way to learn. Play keeps kids involved, and play gets keep people excited about things. And uh, if we can't learn through play, how else can we learn?
5: Well, obviously, you're a mathematician or a physicist to be working on this.
3: Uh, My background's in architecture, actually.
5: Architecture. Yeah, that's why they're little cubes. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so you helped design something that would... Tell me how you came up with cubes.
3: Well, originally, this was intended to be a project for creative people like architects to interact with computation away from the mouse and keyboard and screen to have a little bit of tangible stuff that you could play with to make... 3d models and then we started putting things inside like lights and speakers and motors and all of our friends and science centers and children's museums kept asking when they could have them and um, we just decided that would be a fun project to see how many we could make and get them out in the world
5: so your thought is that if you create these basic modules then people will create their up oh, there goes again uh, <laughs> people will create their own discoveries with them
3: People can build all sorts of different robots. And while cubelets are low threshold, I mean, Joel has no idea what they're supposed to do. And he's making robots that are driving around on the table. I have no idea. (laughs) They're also really high ceiling. So (laughs) advanced kids, older kids, computer scientists can now go in and... Take each one of the cubelets, snap on a Bluetooth cubelet, see the code that's running inside of a cubelet, change the code a little bit, reflash it wirelessly, and start to understand how changing one little piece of a complex system can change the whole emergent behavior of the system.
5: That was a little more complicated than Legos just there. <laughs> but but the other thing is, this is actually both more complex and more simple than Legos. Legos has evolved into something where you kind of make prescribed models. It's kind of paint-by-number Legos. This I'm, is the other way around.
3: Legos are the best, but I read a depressing statistic the other day in a longitudinal study again that said 95% of Lego kits got assembled once into the... Uh, Into the model on the cover of the box and then we're never disassembled and played with you know in the future So we really want cubelets to be sort of a a more uh, Open-ended tool
5: last question is do you have a scholarship program say for schools or kids who can't normally afford The normal price of cubelets is that part of the grants you have
3: it's not uh, But we're starting to get cubelets into quite a few science centers and children's museums So there'll be a lot of places that they're available for people to play with
5: Okay, well, we'd love to talk with you more, but we're out of time. So instead, we'll ask you what your website is so people can find out more themselves.
3: Oh, you can find us online at www.modrobotics.com.
5: Well, thank you again for joining us, Eric Schweikart, who's part of Kubelitz. Thank you.
0: That's all for this edition of How on Earth. Our executive producer is Shelley Schlender. Also, this week's show producer and engineer is Shelley Schlender. Additional contributions by Brianna Draxler.
1: Our theme music was written and produced by Josh Cutler. Additional music from Paper Bird.
0: Visit our website at howonearthradio.org to find past episodes, extended interviews, and you can subscribe to our podcast through iTunes. Questions or comments,
1: call the KGNU comment line at 303-447-9911. For How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show, I'm Susan Moran.
0: And I'm Joel Parker.